Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Just by coincidence, today is the day before Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I should say. And I am working on audios in the book of Mark. I'm in chapter 15, and we have just covered the crucifixion of Jesus in the last audio. And now we're at the end of Mark chapter 15. We're going to talk about the burial of Jesus' body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to look at all four Gospels. We'll start in John chapter 19 and go first, verses 31 through 37. John 19, 31 says this, Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. That preparation day is the preparation for the Saturday, Sabbath. That's every Saturday, Sabbath 52 Sabbaths during the year, they had a preparation day, which was the Friday before. At least that's what most people think. Some people disagree and think this was a special preparation day for the preparation of the Passover, not the Sabbath day. And Adam Clark says, contending nations may be more easily reconciled than contending critics. Well, I'm not going to worry about the critics who disagree. I'm going to assume this is preparation day for Saturday. The Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Now, remember, this year that Jesus was crucified, Passover was Thursday, Nisan 14th. They ate the Passover that Thursday night, which was which was 15th of Nisan, because they the Jews started their day at at sunset. And so then Jesus was crucified that Friday on the 15th of Nisan, and the next day was Saturday, and that was a Sabbath day, and it was a special day, as John says here, for that Sabbath was a special day. Why was it special? Well, because Passover was followed by a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so if the Passover was on Thursday and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread started on Friday and went Friday, Saturday, that Sabbath, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that particular Saturday was the Saturday that fell right in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was part of the Passover feast. And so it was a special day. And as it turns out, even the Jews, even on a normal day, didn't like to leave executed bodies, or, or I shouldn't say or, yeah, dead bodies. They didn't want dead bodies profaning even an ordinary day much less a special Passover Sabbath day, a Sabbath that was in the midst of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That's because of a statute that was in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but you are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the Jews were not to leave the bodies on trees until sundown. And so since this was a Passover Sabbath, infringing that law would be worse than normal, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Now, the law in Moses said hanging on a tree, stoning was the kind of the execution that they did by the time of Jesus. The Roman law had, uh, they would just leave the bodies up on the cross until they were putrefied or eaten by birds of prey. What the, actual, what the Jews actually did normally for executed criminals is not known, according to John Gill. But at any rate, this law would make a scrupulous Jew not desirous of leaving a tree hanging up, uh, leaving a corpse hanging up on a tree. So they they wanted to get Jesus' Jesus's body down because it was the Passover day. So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. The men's meaning the three men that were crucified. The why did they want their legs broken? Because that 
guaranteed their death because the crucified men had to push up on the, the bottom stake that's through their ankle arch bones. And if you broke their legs, they didn't have the ability to push up anymore. They couldn't keep air in their lungs. They would die. And the Jews said, go ahead and kill them and get their bodies away because it's polluting our land. We go to John 19, verse 32 through 34. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who had been crucified with him. That's the one to the left and one to the right of Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. All right, so the soldiers examined the three crucified men. They realized that two of them were not dead yet, so they broke their legs killing them. They didn't bother to break Jesus' leg because the soldier looked at Jesus and knew he was dead already. Well, the question is, how did he know he was dead? John Gill says, from the bowing down of his head, the ghastliness of his countenance, the falling of his jaws, and other signs. I don't know how they knew, but they knew. And if to be dead certain, one of them stabbed him in the side with a spear to make sure he was dead. And at once blood and water came out, the blood from the heart, the water from the pericardium sack around the heart. That proved he was dead. Now, what does this prove, all these little facts? It proves that Jesus didn't just swoon on the cross, faint on the cross, and come back out of his faint and then pretend that he was resurrection of the dead. Folks, he was dead, physically dead. There's no question about this. So the soldiers now give evidence that Jesus is dead. We go to John 19, verses 35 through 37. He who saw this has testified to you that you also may believe. That he who saw this must be John. It's probably John. It could be somebody that John trusted and and told John, but I don't think so. I think it's John himself. He, He was there because Jesus later entrusted, or before, had entrusted his mother Mary to him for safekeeping after he died. So he who saw this, that was John the Apostle, he who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. He's testified by writing this book. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierce. Now, John is real big on testimony. Testimonies, I was talking about signs, the famous seven signs in the book of John. The miracles are signposts that point to heaven, as he says in the last, somewhere at the end of the book. And now he's talking about confession and and, 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 and testimony. He, th- he just talks about it a lot, and here he does again. He says it again. His testimony is true. Where are these scriptures that were fulfilled? Not one bone is to be broken, Exodus 12:46. It is to be eaten, the Passover lamb is to be eaten in one house. You may, de- you may not take any of the meat outside the house, and you may not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb was the type. Jesus was the antitype, as the NIV study Bible says. And Jesus' bones were not broken, even as the Passover lamb's lamb, Passover lamb's bones were not broken. Numbers 9.2 repeats that law. They may not leave any of it until morning, any of the Passover lamb until morning, or break any of its bones. They must observe the Passover according to all its statutes. Psalm 34.20 says he protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scripture. Now, as far as the scripture about they will look at the one they have pierced, this is a famous scripture in Zechariah 12:10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now, notice that 
the Zechariah prophecy says, whom they pierced, they will look at me. Of course, that's talking about God in Zechariah 12, 10, God the Father, but in the fulfillment of it, it's talking about Jesus. They will look at Jesus, whom they pierced. They pierced, the Jews didn't pierce him. And so some people raise an objection to that. The answer is very simple. According to John Gill, the Jews were behind it all. If it wasn't for the Jews, the, the Romans wouldn't have pierced them, so the Jews pierced him just as well as the Romans did. This is off the subject a little bit, but there's a question here in Zechariah 12:10: who they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. What mourning is that? They will weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. It could be those Jews who believed in him or were sad that he was crucified, or it could be those Jews who will mourn when they see him come back and destroy their kingdom. I'm not sure which way the prophecy, uh, uh, to which option the prophecy refers. Let's turn now to Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, where we read this. When it was already evening, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he, Jesus, had already died. When he, Pilate, found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. Now, there's a couple of extra details here. First of all, it says that Joseph of Arimathea, in whose tomb Jesus was buried, was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was a big shot, in other words. Now, because he was a big shot, that showed that he, it took guts for him to ask for the body because he was putting himself at risk because all of the other big shots of Israel were opposed to Jesus and hated him, but Joseph of Arimathea did not hate him and was willing to do something that was a little bit risky, taking Jesus' body off the course, thus exposing the Jews to the possibility that Jesus might rise again from the dead because the Jews were scared that the disciples would steal the body and then perpetrate a fraud on them. So it took a lot of guts for him to do what he did. Now, let's discuss the question of whether Joseph of Arimathea was a coward or not. Well, why would anybody say that? I just finished saying it took guts to what he did. Well, because he was a secret disciple. He was scared to openly confess that he was a follower of Jesus. We know this from John 19:38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Well, you could argue that he was a coward, or you could argue that he was just being prudent and not talking about being a disciple of Jesus because... He would get killed for no good reason. Now, this is an interesting issue. I know I've reason it means a lot to me is because I lived in China so long, and everybody has a a problem. Do how bold are we? Should we be in witnessing for Christ when we are risking other people's lives or other people's freedom, and your own? Not to mention your own freedom if they arrested you or sent kicked you out of the country because of being stupid. And if we, I finally came to the opinion that everybody's got their own threshold on that and that everybody takes their own amount of risk, and I try to be very tolerant of what other people do. But I didn't believe in going right into a classroom and start openly talking about Jesus because, you know, the way to do it was privately, because if you if you did it openly, you're going to get arrested and kicked out of the country. So, And what good are you going to do then? Well, I can say the same thing about Joseph of Arimathea. He was on the Sanhedrin, and he kept quiet about it. Well, what good would it have done for him to talk about how he believed in Jesus? They would have just kicked him off the Sanhedrin, maybe put him in jail. I don't know what good would it have done. So I am not actually, I don't think it's fair to say that Joseph of Arimathea was a coward. He he, he was, I, in my opinion, he was just being prudent. Now, 
Jameson Fawcett Brown said he was a coward at first, but then changed at the crucifixion. Let me read you his quote. He, who was a coward, he referring to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a coward before now, acts a more open, fearless part than any of the disciples of our Lord. This the Holy Spirit has thought worthy of a special notice. It needed no small measure of courage to declare now for Jesus, who had been a few hours ago condemned as a blasphemer by the Jews and a seditious person by the Romans. And this was the more remarkable in Joseph because hitherto, for fear of the Jews, he had been only a secret disciple of our Lord. So Jameson Fawcett and Brown thinks that somehow Joseph of Arimathea was, became full of courage. I don't think so. I think he was just being, he was quiet before because, not because he was a coward, because he was being smart. Also, we pick up in this passage in Mark that Pilate was surprised when he found out that Jesus was already dead. Why would he be surprised? Well, because Pilate is used to people living two or three days, because usually people that are in full strength when they're put up on the cross, put up on a cross, they usually last two or three di- days before it, before they die. Crucifixion was designed to, to produce a long, lingering, cruel death. So Pilate inquires from the centurion whether Jesus had died. The centurion said, yes, he has died. And so, being sure that he was dead, he gave the corpse to Joseph. Pilate gave the corpse to Joseph. How did the centurion know that Jesus had died? Now, you remember the centurion saw everything go dark from 12 to 3. He heard Jesus' two loud cries at the end. Uh, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, uh, Lord, my Lord, my Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is finished. Dead, crucified criminals are exhausted. They don't cry out with a loud cry. That, plus the earthquake, plus the darkness, he believed. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. So, And he heard that, it is finished, and in thy hands I commend thy spirit and all that. So he figured Jesus was dead. Also, the soldiers saw that he was dead when they had come to break his legs. They had probably told the centurion, ah, he's dead. We've stabbed him with the... We didn't need to break his legs because he was already dead, and we stabbed him with a spear on the side, so he was dead. So the centurion knew it and told Pilate, who then gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. Now we turn from Mark to Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 through 58. When it was evening, this is Friday evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This Joseph of Arimathea, who was a, where is Arimathea? Well, Arimathea is a village in the hill country of Ephraim. That's the province right north of Jerusalem, right north of Benjamin. It's about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was his native hometown, but he was living in Jerusalem now, according to Gil. Arimathea is the same place as a place called Ramatham Zophim. Ramatham Zophim, which I'm sure I didn't pronounce right also short for Ramah, and that's famous because it's the birthplace of Samuel the prophet, we learn from 1 Samuel 1.1. So Arimathea was from Samuel's old stomping grounds, and he was in the city probably for the Passover, I guess. Now it says it was evening time when Joseph of Arimathea came to get the body after Pilate gave him permission. The evening could have been just at sunset, as John Gill said, when the Sabbath had begun, or it could be at about three o'clock. Adam Clark says that's the time about when Jesus died. He needed some time between the time he took the body off the cross until he put the body into the grave in Arimathea's garden tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's garden tomb. He needed about some time because they had to wrap the body. They did it quickly because they were planning to come back on Sunday to finish the job. They wanted to get it done before sunset because sunset would have been Sabbath, would have been Friday night, and their Sabbath started in the evening. 
and they didn't want that body to be on the cross on Sabbath. So they had to hurriedly do it. It seems to me if you say it was at sunset when Joseph took the body, that wouldn't give them enough time to wrap it, wrap the body in spices. So somewhere between three and six or so, they take the body off the cross. Now, what was Joseph of Arimathea afraid of? He was afraid that Jesus would be thrown into a common grave with criminals, as Adam Clark says. He didn't want Jesus to be buried between two criminals if he if he was thrown into the same common grave as the criminals he was crucified with. Also, a mob could have gotten his body and abused it, disfigured it. Birds could have gotten the body off the cross and, and, and eaten up the Jesus' body. There's a lot of reasons they, Joseph wanted to get Jesus' body off the cross, and he did. Extra detail mentioned in Matthew verses, chapter 27, verse 57, is that Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Why did Matthew need to mention that? What's the big deal? Well, it shows how Joseph had access to Pilate. Only a rich, important person could walk up to the Roman governor and say, I want the body. Also, it was necessary to show that a particular prophecy was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. That's obviously referring to Jesus in the famous messianic passage suffering servant passage in isaiah 53 and this little detail by the way shows that rich people don't always reject jesus you know rich people got a bad rap and because a lot of rich people are selfish jesus said it's harder for a rich person to go into the kingdom of heaven this for a rich man to go through an eye of a needle well joseph of arimathea managed to squeeze himself through the needle he's he made it so we don't want to over stereotype people I mean, you made what well, the book of James says, be miserable and mourn and weep, you rich people. He was talking about the rich people, the rich Pharisees, basically, or the rich Jews who were oppressing their fellow Jews. He wasn't talking about rich people as a whole class. And also Paul, in first Corinthians, the first part of 1 Corinthians, said not many rich people have come to the kingdom. And that's true. Riches are a horrible stumbling block. Like the rich young ruler, remember him? Jesus was trying to get him detached from his... Riches that said you need to give all your money away. Yeah, riches are, the love of money is the root of all evil. Lots of warnings against riches, but it's nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to be rich. Joseph of Arimathea, the man who buried Jesus, was rich. He gave his rich, his expensive garden tomb away to bury Jesus. By the way, in Jerusalem, you could go to the garden tomb and... The more I sat there and looked at that, they don't know that that was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but I began to really believe it after I saw it, see it. After I looked at it for a while, it looked reasonable to think that it might be Jesus's tomb. And if it wasn't, it was good, it was good to get a picture in my head anyway of what it actually looked like. Now, this Joseph of Arimathea was in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 23, verse 50 says, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. So now we know he's prominent from Mark. We know he's rich from Matthew and also that he was good and righteous from Matthew. Good and righteous rich man. Now, it was unusual to go ask for a body, a crucified man's body, especially a big shot member of the Sanhedrin, because remember the crucified person was a horrible criminal took a lot of courage for Joseph of Arimathea to do what he did, according to the NIV Study Bible. We also learn from Luke chapter 23, verse 51, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He had not agreed with their plan and action, the plan and action of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus and kill, kill him. He was not in agreement with that. He was from Arimathea, a, he, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. So he had messianic hopes in Jesus. 
maybe not a spiritual messianic hopes, but at least he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Good, righteous man. So let's read Matthew 27, verse 58. He approached Pilate, that's Joseph of Arimathea, and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. Now what happened to bodies of executed criminals normally? They were left unburied sometimes, or sometimes they were put into a dishonored place in a pauper's field. Those two options according to the NIV Study Bible. The third option is sometimes they were burned according to Adam Clark. But at any rate, it was not a pretty sight, and Joseph of Arimathea wanted better for Jesus. Why did Pilate agree to release the body? First of all, Joseph of Arimathea was a respected leader among the Jews, and Pilate is more likely going to honor that type of person's request. But also, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, as we've shown in the previous audio, how constantly, over and over again, Pilate was trying to get the Jews to turn him loose, turn Jesus loose because he's innocent. He says, I see nothing I see nothing guilty in this man. He couldn't find anything or any reason to condemn him. And Joseph also was not a relative of Jesus. And yet, nonetheless, even though it was a, Jesus was a criminal guilty of treason in the eyes of the Jews, and even though Joseph of Arimathea was not a relative of Jesus, still Pilate said, you can have the body. One more little detail that shows that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Let's now turn to John 19:38. I want to pick up one little detail here. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. We've already mentioned this, but let's focus on this permission. Why did the Romans require permission to take a dead body off a crucified body off the cross. Because, as the NIV Study Bible points out, otherwise people could take away their crucified friends and revive them. Because it, remember, it took two or three days for someone to die. So someone could, without permission, could go to the cross when nobody's looking. Let's say there's no guard there. They've just left the bodies up there to die. They could climb up on the cross, pull their friends or their relatives off the cross, and nurse them back to health, and they would escape justice. So you couldn't do that. The Romans didn't allow you to take the bodies off the cross without permission. Now we turn to Matthew 27, verse 59, and we'll do 59 and 60. Verse 59 says this, So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen. Remember, Joseph is rich. He's going to have linen, and he wrapped it. The wrapped the body. Now the Jews and Egyptians added spices to the body, then wrapped the body with linen. The linen kept the spices touching every part of the body. And of course, that's to keep the body from decomposing. John 19, verses 39 through 40, as this detailed Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, that's in John 3, John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of about 70 found, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, brothers on the Sanhedrin, both of whom believed in Jesus' innocence, obviously. They were preparing his body for burial. 75 pounds of burnt aloes. I read somewhere else, I think it was another translation, it was 100 pounds. I guess they have trouble translating the Jewish units of measure, but the point is, is that's a lot of myrrh and aloes. Those myrrh and aloes could have been dried powder as they spread it on the body. Aloes could be kind of a sticky ointment, just like aloe vera is that we have today. But at any rate, it was expensive. This was enough myrrh and aloes to bury a king. This was enough for a royal burial. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with, with the aromatic spices, according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now, this, of course, was just a, a preliminary embalmment. Embalmment? Well, it's actually not really an embalmment. It's a, pre a preparation for burial. 
the, uh, the second preparation was planned after this because they had they were in a hurry because the sun was about to go down and the Sabbath was about to rise uh, to arrive. So they put the body in the grave, planning on going back there on Sunday to prepare the body again. Of course, that's the same time that the women were coming with their spices to prepare the body. Luke 23, verses 56 through Luke 24, verse 1 says this. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. They came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. So you see that was on Sunday morning. So they did this on Friday and Sunday. Jesus was at least on Friday. Of course, they didn't have a chance to do anything on Sunday because Jesus had risen from the dead, but they were planning to. Matthew 27, verse 60 says this. They placed Jesus' body in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. That's Joseph of Arimathea. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. I don't know if anybody's thought about this too much, but you know, usually people make preparations for funerals they might buy a tomb in advance and they get their relatives to figure out where they're going to bury him jesus had nowhere to, not only in life he did not have anywhere to lay his head john gill points out even in death he didn't have any way to lay anywhere to lay his head i don't it, apparently he had not planned on and the disciples had not planned on where they were going to bury him once he got killed i guess because they couldn't imagine him even getting killed but that doesn't seem to have been on the agenda didn't seem like either jesus or the disciples worried about it too much now, this stone was cut out of rock. This was very usual for Jews to cut graves out of rocks. Isaiah 22, verse 16 says this, What are you doing here? Who authorized you to carve out a tomb for yourself here? Carving your tomb on the height and cutting a crypt for yourself out of rock. I forgot who Isaiah was referring to, but the point is, is that this was a normal thing to cut graves out of rock. Now, the stone was a disc-shaped stone which was rolled in a sloped channel in front of the tomb. Those things are heavy, and they put it up at the on an incline in the in, in a in a in a channel of stone. And then you push the rock, and it would roll down that channel and get in front of the stone. And you're not going to push it back up once it's in front to seal the tomb. Joseph would have had to have help doing this because the stone was too big for one man to move. And of course, this is more proof. How did you know Jesus? Who moved the stone? You know, how did Jesus get out of there? His disciples sure didn't come to steal the body. They couldn't have moved that stone, especially since the Jews had soldiers there watching. They would have taken a bunch of huffing and puffing and heaving and noise to get that stone from in front of the grave. And yet, the grave was empty. How do we explain that? If my memory is correct, the angel, one of the angels moved that stone out from the tomb, allowing Jesus... I know people debate this. Some people say Jesus just walked through the stone... And came out. I don't think. I don't think he was being quite that ghostly as he walked around in his glorified body. I think probably one of those angels moved the stone out of the way. But anyway, we know it was too heavy for men to do it quietly in the middle of the night with nobody seeing them. The disciples could not have stolen the body. I've already mentioned this was a new tomb, which shows that, which is necessary because Jesus was buried in that tomb alone, which means that when the tomb was if if he had been buried in a tomb with somebody else, the tomb wouldn't have been empty. And so people could have said, well, you know, yeah, there was still a body in there. So that must have been Jesus. You just got, you got confused about the bodies. There's still a dead man in there. So Jesus didn't rise. No, this was a brand new tomb. Nobody had laid his head in that tomb. It says in one of the parallel passages. Also, the Jews would not have put a seal on a common tomb. 
But when the Jews found out that Jesus was being buried in a friend's tomb, a rich man's tomb, who was very prominent, and then they said, well, now, we better mark this tomb out and put a seal on it and make sure nobody gets in there because everybody's going to know if it's stolen out of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That wouldn't have been the case if it had been just a common tomb. They wouldn't have worried about it so much because people wouldn't be able to distinguish the common person's tomb and say that was the tomb where Jesus was buried and it's empty now. Hard to do that when there's more than one body in a tomb and when the tomb is not distinct from all the other tombs around there. But Joseph of Arimathea, he's rich, he's got a garden, it's a singular tomb, and it's empty. Well, now we've got a problem, the Jews would think. We've got an apologetic problem. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 23, verses 52 through 53. He, Joseph of Arimathea, approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. Now, the other Gospels say it was a new tomb. Luke is even more explicit. It's a new tomb where no one had ever been placed. That shows that the tomb was alone that Jesus was alone in that tomb, and therefore when the tomb was empty, that means Jesus had to have come out of that tomb as a resurrected human being. John Gill makes this point, by the way, in his commentary. It's not, not, this is not just my idea. Now let's finish up this audio by looking at John chapter 19, verses 39 through 42. John 19:39 says this, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, that means also in addition to Joseph of Arimathea, also came to the garden tomb is probably where they were, where they where they put the spices and the myrrh and the aloes on Jesus' body. Joseph had help. This was his fellow member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus. Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. This is the Home of Christian Study Bible, which uses English terms of measurements. I mentioned earlier that's enough to bury a king. It was very expensive. Nicodemus was one of the three, three richest men in Jerusalem, according to the rabbis. Joseph of Arimathea was rich too. But Nicodemus brought all those spices, so two rich people who got saved. It's not impossible for rich people to get saved. Sometimes I just feel like there's no point in witnessing to rich people. They really are. They're some of the hardest people to witness to. But we got to remember, even rich people get saved. God can save anybody. He can even save a Democrat. He can save anybody. He can save a progressive leftist liberal. All right, so... um, Nicodemus, by the way, he's mentioned three times. He was the famous guy in John 3 who came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. No one can perform these signs unless God were with them. What must I do to be born again? And Jesus said, you got to, what must I do to see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I go back into my mother's room and be born again? That famous story where John 3.16 is. And then also it's mentioned in another passage that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then, as he's mentioned here, is bringing the spices. He was a Pharisee, the scriptures say. He was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was on the Sanhedrin. He was a rabbi and a Pharisee, which means he was a learned in the law and taught. And as I said, he was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Remember, that was because he was scared that the Sanhedrin or his fellow Pharisees or his fellow Sanhedrin members might see him going to Jesus he was a secret disciple just like Joseph of Arimathea. Isn't it interesting? Both of these guys were rich and with with power. Both of them were scared to come out. They had a lot to lose. Again, as I said earlier, it might have been prudence, not just cowardice. But at any rate, they were secret disciples and they're joining one another. Why did they put myrrh on the body? To drive the smell away of a decaying corpse. And as I said earlier, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, the myrrh and the aloes could have just been could have been in the form of dry powder. John 19:40. They, 
Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with aromatic spices according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now the NIV says instead of linen cloths, they wrapped it in linen cloths. The NIV says they wrapped it in linen in strips of linen, which were thin strips like bandages. And then besides the strips of linen, there was a shroud that was placed, a large sheet. And they quote Mark, Matthew, and Luke passages there to prove that. Now notice, if Jesus was still alive and he was just swooned on the cross and they were waiting to revive him to, per- to perpetrate a fraud that Jesus had been resurrected, they never would have wrapped Jesus in linen if they thought he was still alive and just getting waiting to come up from a swoon. Wrapping somebody in linen, that's enough to kill you right there because you can't breathe. One more bit of evidence against the swoon theory. John 19, verses 41 through 42. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. In the area is what it means, a garden. And that's another thing. The garden was convenient to Golgotha, which kept, which made it possible for Joseph of Arimathea to get the body off the cross and in the, in the tomb very quickly before the, the Sabbath day, Friday night, arrived. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. John says the same thing Luke says. It's not only new, but nobody's ever been put in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation since the tomb was nearby. Now, verse 42 is a little strange. They placed Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb because of the Jewish day of preparation, the Jewish preparation, which is the Jewish day of preparation, which is Friday, the day before the Saturday. Why, what does that have to do with putting Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's Arimathea's tomb. Well, I think it is because it means, I think what John means is, is that the day of preparation is here, which means the Sabbath is here, is very is the next day. Since the Sabbath day is close, and we can't have a crucified body hanging up on a cross on the Sabbath day, we've got to get him into a tomb quickly, and there's a nearby tomb, it's my tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and we can get in there quickly. So I think that that because of the Jewish preparation means because the Jewish preparation day was close to the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath day doesn't allow us to put a body on the cross. All right, this is the end of my discussion of the burial of Jesus. We will continue on with the resurrection events in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>